Thanks so much, guys, for leading us in worship today. As we continue to worship today, I'll be reading out of 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. And Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their sinful desires, they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and by that, by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to this promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells forever. Amen. Let's pray together. So, Father, we just come to you just thanking you so much for who you are, that you're the God of creation, that you're our heavenly Father, that you're the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you, Father, for being who you are and that you have loved us so much just as we celebrate that you gave your only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life and father just as we have read in second peter today and throughout your word we thank you for the promises that you have given us the promise of a savior and the promise of his blessed blessed return so, Father, we just want to worship you and to honor you as we wait for that blessed, blessed day. The promise of a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells forever. And that righteousness is because you, Father, have given us the righteousness of Christ and because you will be there. So, Father, we thank you that we can pray for others this morning. For those that might be here this morning who do not know about this righteousness, that your Holy Spirit would draw them close to you, that they truly might proclaim that today is the day of salvation for them. 
that they would profess that Jesus is their salvation. So, Father, as we open your word today, we ask you to bless it as only you can. It will go out and accomplish its purpose because you tell us that in your word. And we just pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Kate. Well, good morning again, church. Super good to see you all here. You're going to be in 2 Peter. We've got this week, and if you're looking in your Bibles, you notice we're at the end. Um, after next Sunday, we will have read every verse from 1 Peter and 2 Peter together um, over the course of this spring. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a really helpful time for me. It's hopefully been an encouraging time for you. The general theme behind the letters, if you're just visiting with us today, is that Peter is writing from more than likely from Rome to a group of Christians who have been exiled out of Rome because of their faith um, and kind of deported to the smaller communities of Asia Minor. And so they've been just uprooted, just ripped out of neighborhoods, homes, communities, fellowship, and taken out into these kind of foreign places. And so there's a lot of, uh, you can imagine, just a lot of sadness and a lot of hurt and a lot of fear um, for these Christians who are, who, are, who are experiencing this solely because of their faith in Jesus. So Peter's writing to them from Rome to encourage them. And so we've made it to the point in 2 Peter where he's going to write about this future hope that is to come. And I think it's important to note that Peter didn't lead with this. Um, this is where he's ending his encouragement. And I think, I think about why he might have done that. I don't fully know why, but I think it's healthy to think about that, that he didn't just start off with writing his letter. I know things are hard, but it's going to be better, so be okay, right? Which is oftentimes how we treat the promises of God, or the future hope of God, and right in, in our current circumstances, oftentimes we'll use this idea that things are going to get better. We know that's true. And so we'll use that to, to numb out or check out of the pain of today. Like immediately, as soon as we start to feel the discomfort of something going on, yeah, but God's going to do this, something here. Right? God's going gonna to get better. Like You know how quickly we do that, right? We play the mind game, which then is really more of like coping with the pain or disconnecting from the pain. Right, breaking eye contact with the pain so we don't have to feel it. But that's not what hope is. Hope is a longing for things to get better and a confidence that something better is on the way. And we can hold our pain and our struggle, our discomfort, and hope at the same time. And when we do that, hope becomes all the more sweeter. So the, the idea that things will get better in the end is not a coping mechanism from God so you can ignore what's going on in your life. It's meant to give you something to hold on to in the midst of things being really, really hard. And so Peter waits to the end of his letter to point them to this future promise and this future hope that something better is on the way. And so we're going to pick this up in verse 1 and 2. Chapter 3, he writes this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
So what Peter is doing is actually something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about next Sunday. So I'll keep it brief today. As he refers to uh, the prophets here, and he refers to the teachings of the Lord through the apostles, essentially what Peter's referring to is your scriptures. And we'll, again, we'll see that more clearly next week. As he says this, he says, you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Okay, and this is, this is the idea that the Old Testament contains these predictions, these promises, these prophecies of what is to come. And you could sum it up like this. All the promises of God, all the predictions of God, all the prophecies of the Old Testament find their realization in this one promise. Behold, I am making all things new again. All the promises of the Old Testament are aimed at that one promise being fulfilled. Which is, we're going to see today how your Bible ends. This is the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, where God does in fact make things new again. So he mentions the promises and the predictions of the prophets, but he also mentions the commandments of Jesus that were brought to the church through the apostles. This would become then your New Testament. The New Testament contains the writings of the apostles as they write down the commandments and the teachings of Jesus. And so all the commandments of God, once again, could be summed up and aimed at one thing or Two things you might say, love the Lord God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. You know, that's how the Ten Commandments began. The first three or four commandments were just aimed at that. Just love God. Have no other gods before him. Make no idols. Don't take his name in vain. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says that sums up all the commandments. And so here Peter is reminding them of all the promises of God, pointing to this one promise, behold, I will make all things new. And he's reminding them of the, of the teachings and the commandments of Jesus brought to them through the apostles. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so he's reminding them of these things. We pick this back up in verse 3, and we begin to be reminded of the problems that were going on in these small little communities. That there were actually, like we talked about last week, false teachers who were trying to convince them that Jesus wasn't going to return, trying to convince them there wouldn't be a final judgment. And so in verse 3, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, that Greek word just means people who make fun of people. Okay, so people who make fun of people will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So you hear their argument, nothing's changing. Where's Jesus at? I thought he was coming back. And they'll begin to make fun of people who are still holding on to that hope. For they, in verse 5, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water or it was flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So what he's doing is he's saying, like, I know that people are come showing up and they're making fun of you for holding on to these promises that haven't come true yet. These people have deliberately, that means they made a decision to overlook the truth of the big picture of God. That the heavens and earth existed a long before. And that, right, the same God flooded the earth at one point in time. And this same God sustains the heavens and the earth. And the fact that they even have air to breathe to make fun of you is a testimony to the power of God. And they deliberately overlook this fact. I wrote down a few words from a song that we sang a few minutes ago. This truth that we, that we believe, that he shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. So I still hold to that promise. And these Christians were holding to that same promise. And people were deliberately trying to lead them astray and they were making fun of them. Last week in chapter 2, Peter warned against these false teachers who are actually teaching that Jesus wasn't going to return. This is happening about 30 years now after the resurrection. So it's three decades after the resurrection. And, and last week, Peter describes these individuals as people who at one time were really excited about the resurrection. They were really excited about following Jesus. And we talked about how that was a lot like the seeds that fall on the rocky soil. They spring up quickly and get excited quickly and throw a pep rally quickly around the resurrection. But now here, 30 years removed, they've already began to lose hope that God will keep the rest of his promises and that Jesus will return. And so verse 8, he begins to give instructions for the church then. He says, but for you, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now this, this verse gets kind of hijacked out of context oftentimes. Uh, the idea that with the Lord a thousand years is like a day and a day a thousand years, that's not meant to be a mathematical algorithm and you take it to create, like it's not meant to, it's just simply meant to be this idea that God is not bound by time. That's, that's what Peter's getting at. God is not bound by time. He's not on your timetable. And I know you're watching the clock and you're like, man, if he doesn't come back soon, I, I'm, I'm going to miss him. But he is not bound by time and he does not operate on our timetables. But then he talks about the heart of God and why it's taking so long. He said, because the Lord is being patient with you. And he's being patient with those who have not believed yet. And his desire is that, that all would repent. And so 
the prolonging of the return of Jesus is creating more space for more people to repent and, and to come into the kingdom. It's not meant to be a cruel act of just keeping us waiting, but it's an expression of his loving kindness. Aren't you glad that God was not on their timetable? But 2,000 years ago, as Peter writes this, God was being patient and he had today on his mind. And it's easy for us to get swept up in that same mindset. Okay, I'm a Christian now. I'm in the kingdom now. Come on back, Jesus. Let's do this. And there will be a time when that happens. But it's not on our timetable because God is still being patient. And he's still creating space for more to come into the kingdom. In verse 10, Peter describes the coming of the Lord this way. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heaven bodies will melt as they burn. So there's this description here, first of all, that the timing of the Lord's coming will be like the timing of when a thief comes in the night. It catches you off guard and you're not expecting it. And Jesus actually teaches this in Matthew 24, verse 42. He says, therefore stay awake, don't fall asleep, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this... That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not his, let his house be broken into. So the idea is don't be, don't be the Christian who puts your head in the sand and just goes to sleep. It's good and right to long for the return of the day of the Lord, to want for it, to ask for it, to pray for it, to expect it and be like the owner of the house who's found awake, who isn't caught off guard but nobody will know the timing when you find somebody who professes to be the next prophet and predicts the return of the Lord Jesus don't believe them simply put just don't believe them Jesus said no one will know but here's what you can do you can be awake. You could be longing for it and looking for it. And then he even says here, what sort of people ought we be while we're waiting? How does this motivate us then to live life in a certain way? I think this motivates us to not wait and put off the most important things in life. How many of us are still doing that? Waiting until we get more time. Then I will come back to the Lord. Waiting until I get more time, then I will invest in my relationship with Jesus. Waiting until I get more time, then I will fill in the blank. I think the impact is this, that we not wait to do the most important things in life. We don't put off pursuing a relationship with God. And we live with our priorities at the center. This means the center of your calendar and of your budget. You cannot say this thing is important to me and it is my priority 
while your budget and your calendar say other things. The truth will come out in very practical ways in daily life, right? And so he just asks the question, since he's gonna, the return of the Lord is going to be like a thief coming in the night, how should that impact the way we live our lives? And then in verse 13, which is where we will land today, he says, but according to his promise, remember the, we're waiting on this promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Church, something better is on the way. The earth we live in is not gonna be a remodel project for God. Jesus isn't gonna come back and take what we have here and just make it a little bit better. All that language about burning it up, that's good news. He's gonna burn up the corruption and the evil and the wickedness and everything that is related to creation being corrupt. And then behold, he is going to make all things new again. In verse 13, this is where Peter begins to point them to this future hope of what is to come, the new heavens and the new earth. We'll look with you in Revelation uh, chapter 21 and then again in 22 at how the apostle John describes this vision God gives him of this new heaven and this new earth. What is to come? What is it that we're waiting for? What is it that God's going to do when, when Jesus returns? What will the new heaven and the new earth be like? So Revelation chapter 21, I'm going to read a few verses from this chapter and then we'll move to chapter 22. So John describes this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. As Christians, we have the Holy Spirit of God and we get to speak to God. And if we listen, we can hear from God. And if, we, if we'll pay attention, we can experience his presence. But that's not what's being described here. What's being described here is what Adam and Eve had in chapter 2 of Genesis before the fall. Where they had the full presence of God. They didn't have to strain to hear him or strain to see him or strain to go, I think that's him, maybe he's near. They knew it. God will once again make his dwelling place with man. This is all part of the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 4 says, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We have tears today because this life has pain in it. Because we encounter evil and wickedness and corruption on a daily basis, and we suffer 
God is not saying to you, quit your crying. He's saying, hey, there's a day coming when I will wipe away your tears. You won't need them anymore. Isn't that good news? Like there's a day coming where you will no longer need tears to express how you feel. Verse 5, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. All things. What things? All things. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha, I am the omega, the beginning and the end. And I love this. To the thirsty, listen to this. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Okay, two things. One, he's quoting the Old Testament, a prophecy that God would provide water without payment, a water you can't afford without payment. That's good news. But don't forget what Peter said last week about these scoffers and these false teachers. Do you remember what he said? He says, they are waterless springs. They promise things they can't deliver. They promise real life and they don't deliver. It's like being thirsty in the desert and you see a spring, but there's no water coming out of it. And in contrast to that, Revelation 21 says this, that God will come to the thirsty and he will give them something to drink from the spring of the water of life. And here's what it's going to cost you. You ready? You got your checkbooks ready? Without payment. There's nothing you can do to pay God for this. No amount of money given to the church or to the poor. No amount of service. I was thinking about this today. If there were a way to make it into heaven by serving, if there were, there's not. If there were, it would be through kids ministry. If you look around the room and you see the green shirts, you guys are my heroes. Serving our kids, our nursery, our toddlers and our kids ministry. You guys are the heroes of those who serve. Your service is not enough. What God offers you can't be bought with your service. It comes to you without payment because you can't afford it. And so everything that we're talking about today, about this new heaven, this new earth, this eternity with God forever, it comes to you free. It's yours. And here's what you owe. Nothing. It's without payment. I want to walk through some slides with you, but before we do, don't go to the slides yet. I have to preface this. Um, Jennifer Henderson isn't here today. She's on vacation. She's our communications manager, and she makes all of our outstanding graphics. And I told her, you're not allowed to watch on Sunday because I'm going to put some graphics up there that you did not proof and you did not approve. <laughs> just disclosure, okay? So just trust, just know. You're going to see it. You're going to go, oh, it looks like a third grader did it. Yeah, it was me. Okay. <laughs> All feeling good. So no need to go tell on me to Jen. Okay? All right. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through this big story. That's what Peter's doing. Say, hey, don't forget the big story of God. Let's walk through this together. So here's the idea. Genesis chapter 1. Adam and Eve were created in a garden. They had fellowship with one another. See how they're holding hands? I know you're going, oh, stick figures, really? Yeah. That's all I had. Okay. But notice this. They're in the garden. And the tree of life is there. 
And notice that their fellowship with, with God is connected. And the triangle re represents the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And Adam and Eve were the imago Dei, which is the image of God, the reflection of God. This is chapter 1 and 2 of Genesis. And God said, Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. If you sin, if you disobey me, sin and death will now enter into the story. And so here's what happened. Adam and Eve both sin and death enters the story. This is where suffering comes from. Suffering is death delayed over time. That's what suffering is. And so after that, then, here's the way the creation looked. You see that's an image, but it's a broken mirror. The image of God, the Imago Dei, was now distorted in Adam and Eve. Creation was meant to, to reveal who God is and his goodness and his kindness and his majesty. And to see what God looks like, you were supposed to be able to look at humans and see a reflection of, the, of who God is. But the entire Old Testament is this corrupt um, image of God now through the fall. That's why when you read the Old Testament, it's hard to get a good, when you just read the stories of man, it's hard to get a good image of who God is. Like, who is God? Because it's now distorted. But the Old Testament also includes the promise of, of God, gonna, he's going to send a savior, a rescuer. And these prophecies, these promises of the Old Testament are saying, hey, but something good is on the way. Someone good is coming. A rescuer, a Messiah. Turns out that Messiah was the son of God, Jesus himself. This cross represents, if you look at the bottom, it's a B, his birth, his miraculous birth. But also the D, if you can read it from where you are, is his death. Actually, the B represents his burial and then the resurrection, his ascension. But this was God fulfilling his promise to send a rescuer. He sent his son. He didn't send one of the prophets to do it for him. He didn't even send an angel. He actually sends his son to die on a cross for us that we might have salvation which leads us then to the church. We are living in the era of the church. I want to hold right here. If you can read it from where you are, it says the now and the not yet. This is where we hold on to hope <laughs> while we suffer. This is where we hold on to the truth that if you're in Christ, you are made righteous and you still struggle with sin. The now and the not yet is what we hold on to right now while we wait for what is not yet. And this is the era of the church. And in this waiting is where God does his sanctifying work in us. Sanctification is that the big word that describes the process of God transforming you to be more like Jesus. If you are a Christian, you are every day becoming what you already are in Christ. You are returning to Eden day by day, struggle by struggle, glory by glory. So the next slide is sanctification. I want to, this is where I want to hold. I want to go back to Revelation 22. So the very last chapter in your Bible, we're just going to read the first few verses. I want you to listen to this description now of this new heaven and this new earth. So John, he's, he's describing it as he sees it. Whoa, new heaven, new earth. And God's like, hey, I'm going to make my dwelling with you again. And he's wiping away tears. And then I saw this look like Jerusalem just kind of coming from heaven back to, to earth. And he's describing what he's seeing. And look at what he says in chapter 22, verse 1. And the angel showed me the river of the water of life. You know where the first place we hear about the, the river of the water of life? It's actually in the garden in the beginning. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river 
the tree of life. You remember the tree of life from Genesis? The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. This is the idea that it's not a tree that comes in season and then goes out of season. This tree is constantly yielding fruit. And it says this, the leaves of the fruit of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And so the very next slide on this description looks like this. The final restoration. Behold, I am making all things new. Now this is the gospel story. It's a way to illustrate your Bible from cover to cover. But how does this story become my story? I want to walk through that with you this morning. So how does this story become my story? We start here. We have to realize that through our sin, we now experience separation. Notice Adam and Eve are separated from one another. And they're also separated from who? God. This is Genesis chapter 3. The first thing they did is they made loincloths to hide from each other. They automatically began to move away from one another. What else did they do? They hid from God. And so that's what this image represents is this idea that now they, they are the distorted Imago Dei. God banishes them from the garden. They now live with this sin nature in a fallen world. They have a broken relationship with God and a broken relationship with others. This is, this is the world you were born into. Whether you're born into a wealthy home or a poor home. Regardless of what life you've lived up until this day, this is the world you've been living in. Without a rescuer, somebody to fix what is broken, we are hopeless. And so we experience corruption. Remember, that's what John writes down. There will no longer be corruption. Corruption will be no more. But right now there is corruption, right? And I'm not just talking about the government. Yes, you can go there. But it's more than that. Things are not as it ought to be. And so we get in this cycle now. This distorted image of God, of sin and death. This hopeless despair of trying to save ourselves. Surely you know what this is like. You found something broken in your life and you tried to fix it and you couldn't. Anybody? There's this thing I don't want to do anymore, but I just keep doing it. There's this thing I wish I could do and I wish I had the strength to do it, but I just can't find the strength to do it. And something's not right. My want to and my, my doing don't seem to be connected and I'm trying, but I keep failing. That's this, this endless spiral of hopeless despair and trying to save ourselves. And this is where we need Jesus. And the only doorway, I want you to hear this, the only way, the only way into a relationship with Jesus is through confession. I didn't say a confession null. I said confession. What is confession? It's simply just telling the truth. It means to agree with God. You can confess your sin. You can confess more than that. You can confess your weakness. David is confessing in all the Psalms that you read. Right? He's confessing loneliness and hurt and pain and fear and even his sin. The doorway into relationship with God 
And this new heaven and this new earth is one way, and it is through confession. Confession leads you to the cross. This is where we find our salvation. It's where we experience the covenant love of God and others. When you confess to God your sins and your weakness, he doesn't run from you. And he doesn't backhand you with it. He doesn't use it against you. You can be at your most vulnerable with God. And what you're going to receive in return is covenant love. That means love that's bound in promise. Not come and go love. Love that's bound in promise. But not only that, as you step into the church, you're going to begin to experience that covenant love with other humans. Imperfectly as it is, right, it's still an expression of covenant love. It's why we, in our membership, we sign a covenant that represents our bound promise to love one another. And so through the cross, we find this covenant love that leads us to a deeper connection with God and others. It takes us back to the church. You can kind of see the parallel here. This is where we find communion with God and community with one another. It's a bogus idea, it's not true that if you're a Christian, you don't need the church. God said before the fall, it's not good for man to be alone. And guess what, that's still true. I know there are a lot of reasons why you might not want to be in connection with other human beings. We can be really hurtful at times. But what God is doing in you is, he, remember, he's restoring all that was lost And the the relationship between Adam and Eve is now distorted and broken. He's restoring your relationship with other humans. So it's communion with God, but it's community with the church. And then this is where we begin to find correction and change in our lives that leads us then to this. The restoration, and the last slide is this. For all that was broken in the garden, you probably can't read it from where you are. God is restoring the Imago Dei. He makes his dwelling place with man again. This is where we will experience covenant love. We will be forgiven and made righteous. We'll have restored communion with God and restored community with others. This is the hope that Peter's pointing these struggling Christians to. He said, hey, don't forget this. Don't forget all that the prophets have promised. Don't forget all that the apostles have commanded. They're all aiming at one thing. It's amazing covenant love with God and others that will last forever in his kingdom at the return of his son. And Peter's saying, I know there are false teachers who are trying to convince you that that's not going to happen. They're trying to steal your hopes away. They are actually making fun of you for holding on to this hope. Oh, but church, don't lose hope. And this hope is not meant to be something that that disconnects you from the pain of your life. It's the hope that you have that you can hold on to even while life is hard. You with me? Even while life is hard. Matter of fact, it's the hardness of life that makes this hope all the more sweeter. And this is the hope we have in Christ. So I want to land here with just a few questions for us to reflect on. I, I hope that these will be personal for you that you would really think about how you would answer these questions. You may want to write them down or take a picture of the screen. These are great discussion questions for later in the day with your family or with a friend. Here's the first question. Do you ever struggle with doubt about God or whether or not he will actually fulfill his promises? When you hear that these Christians were only 30 years out from the resurrection, they were starting to doubt that God was actually going to send his son to return 
did that like spark up some doubt for you? You're like, yeah, I doubt that too sometimes. Do you struggle to believe that? That God is going to fulfill his promises. How does, this is the next question, the prolonging of Jesus' return express his patience and kindness towards those who are currently lost? Can you see that now? Yes, we are still struggling and suffering until he returns to make all things new. But in our struggling and suffering, God is being patient, creating more space for others. So how does the prolonging of Jesus' return express his patience and kindness towards those who are lost? And this last question, I just encourage you to think about this. How does the promise of the new heaven and the new earth give you hope in the midst of your current struggles? So if you were to stop right now, just stop. Stop thinking about all you have to do this week. Stop thinking about what you're going to do for lunch. Stop thinking about what happened even on the car ride here. If you just stopped and took inventory on where you are right now, and whatever it is that you might be struggling with, you just let it come to the surface. That's scary, isn't it? Maybe for you it's, it's fear, doubt. Maybe there's some sadness or some grief or maybe some anger which has come up. How does the promise of the new heaven and the new earth give you hope in the midst of that? I want to leave you with that today. I want to end with just a, a simple invitation for you to respond if God's speaking to you today. And we just read his word, so there's a good chance he is. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I know we've, we've already talked a couple times. Um, but I want you to know that what we have in Christ is available to you and it's, it's free without payment. That this salvation that we just talked about, this, this beautiful promise of God comes to us by faith. God explicitly says in the Bible, we are saved by grace through faith. And so all God asks is that you bring whatever faith you have today. You don't have to have a ton of faith, just like the smallest, like a mustard seed. Bring whatever faith you have today, bring that to him. You can, you can actually move around in the room. We all, we'll have prayer partners at the front of the room, and they're here to pray with you about anything that might have come up today. Um, our pastors and our, our elders who are present here today will be out in the commons area. Um, we ask our elders to wear a lanyard. That way you can kind of easily identify who we are. If you need to talk, you need somebody to pray with you, or you want questions answered, come grab us. If you just want to stay seated while we sing, you can do that. Just some time in prayer. You want to stand and sing, you can do that. So we're going to give you space and option, but the invitation is that you would actually respond to God in whatever way he's speaking to you today, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for how Second Peter comes to us as such an encouragement God, if we're honest that today in our time, probably many of us here today, we struggle to believe that you're going to keep your promises. We're thankful, God, that we can look back on the cross and know that your people waited for thousands of years for, for Jesus to show up, and many of them doubted that you would keep that promise. And so that, that helps us, God, to know that we are not holding on to hope in vain. God, to you, a thousand years is like a day and a day like a thousand years. And right now, you are being patient and kind and slow 
But God, that means that while we wait, there's, there are hard things we have to walk through. So God, thank you for this hope we have, this hope we can hold on to, that you will return and you will make all things new again. Lord Jesus, just pray for anybody here that doesn't know you that today would be that day of salvation, that they would, a person would come to you in faith, either praying in their own heart or grabbing a prayer partner and just taking that step of faith. For those who are here today who are Christians who've maybe lost sight of this hope, that today there would be a stirring, a day to, to awaken and to remember this hope we have in the new heaven and the new earth. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.